7. While waiting, the men were obliged to hold their guns and powder horns above their heads to keep them dry. Now and then a man would stub his toe against a root or a stone and would go sprawling head first into the water. When he came up, puffing and blowing from such a dive, he was lucky if he still had his gun. For two days no one could get anything to eat, but hungry, wet, and cold, they kept moving slowly on. The last part of the march was the worst of all. They were now near the fort, but they still had to wade through a sheet of water four miles across. Clark took the lead and plunged in. The rest, shivering, followed. A few looked as though their strength and courage had given out. Clark saw this, and calling to Captain Bowman, one of the bravest of his officers, he ordered him to kill the first man who refused to go forward. At last, with numbed hands and chattering teeth, all got across. But some of them were so weak and bloom with cold that they could not take another step, but fell flat on their faces in the mud. These men were so nearly dead that no fire seemed to warm them. Clark ordered two strong men to lift each of these poor fellows up, hold him between them by the arms, and run him up and down until he began to get warm. By doing this he saved everyone. 167. Clark takes the fort, what we got by his victory, his grave. After a long and desperate fight Clark took Fort Vincent and hoisted the stars and stripes over it in triumph. The British never got it back again. Most of the Indians were now glad to make peace, and to promise to behave themselves. By Clark's victory the Americans got possession of the whole western wilderness up to Detroit. When the Revolutionary War came to an end, the British did not want to give us any part of America beyond the 13 states on the Atlantic coast. But we said, the whole west clear to the Mississippi, is ours, we fought for it, we took it, we hoisted our flag over its forts, and we mean to keep it, we did keep it, there is a grass-grown grave in a burial ground in Louisville, Kentucky, which has a small headstone marked with the letters JRC and nothing more, that is the grave of General George Rogers Clark, the man who did more than anyone else to get the West for us or what was called the West a hundred years ago, 168, Summary during the Revolutionary War George Rogers Clark of Virginia, with a small number of men, captured Fort Kaskaskia in Illinois, and Fort Vincent in Indiana. Clark drove out the British from that part of the country, and when peace was made, we kept the west that island the country as far as the Mississippi River as part of the United States. Had it not been for him and his brave men, we might not have got it. What did the British have in the west? Where were three of those forts, who hired the Indians to fight? How did they fight? What did most of the people in England think about this? What is said of George III? What friend did Daniel Boone have in Virginia? What did Clark undertake to do? Tell how he went down the Ohio. Tell how he marched on Fort Kaskaskia. What happened when he got there? What did Clark say to the people in the fort? How was Fort Vincent taken? What did the British do the next year? Tell about Francis Vigo. What did Clark and his men start to do? How far off was Fort Vincent? Tell about the first part of the march. What lands did they come to? Tell how the men waited. How did Clark save the lives of some of the men? Did Clark take the fort? What did the Americans get possession of by this victory? What happened at the end of the Revolutionary War? What did we say? What is said of the grave at Louisville, Kentucky? What did Clark get for us? General R.U.F.U. Putnam 1738 1824 169 What General Putnam did for Washington? and what the British said of Putnam's work. When the British had possession of Boston in the time of the Revolution, Washington asked Rufus Putnam, who was a great builder of forts, to help him drive them out. 
Utnam set to a work, one dark, stormy night, and built a fort on some high land overlooking Boston Harbor. When the British commander woke up the next morning, he saw the American cannon plonked at his ships. He was so astonished that he could scarcely believe his eyes. Why, said he, the rebels have done more in one night than my whole army could have done in a week. Another officer, who had command of the British vessels, said, if the Americans hold that fort, I cannot keep a ship in the harbor. Well, we know what happened. Our men did hold that fort, and the British had to leave Boston. Next to General Washington, General Rufus Putnam was the man who made them go, for not many officers in the American army could build such a fort as he could. 170. General Putnam builds the Mayflower, goes down the Ohio River and makes the first settlement in Ohio. After the war was over, General Putnam started with a company of people from New England, to make a settlement on the Ohio River. In the spring of 1788 he and his emigrants built a boat at a place just above Pittsburgh. They named this boat the Mayflower, because they were pilgrims going west to make their home there. At that time there was not a white settler in what is now the state of Ohio. Most of that country was covered with thick woods. There were no roads through those woods, and there was not a steamboat or a railroad either in America or in the world. If you look on the map and follow down the Ohio River from Pittsburgh, you will come to a place where the Muskingum joins the Ohio. At that place the Mayflower stopped and the emigrants landed and began to build their settlement. 171. What the settlers named their town, the first 4th of July celebration, what Washington said of the settlers. During the Revolutionary War the beautiful Queen Mary of France was our firm friend, and she was very kind and helpful to Dr. Franklin when he went to France for us. A number of the emigrants had fought in the Revolution, and so it was decided to name the town Marietta, in honor of the Queen. When the Marietta settlers celebrated the 4th of July, Major Denny, who commanded a fort just across the river, came to visit them. He said, These people appear to be the happiest folks in the world. President Washington said that he knew many of them and that he believed they were just the kind of men to succeed. He was right, for these people, with those who came later to build the city of Cincinnati, were the ones who laid the foundation of the great and rich state of Ohio. Footnote 6 the queen's full name in French was Marie Antoinette, the name Marietta is made up from the first and the last parts of her name. 172. Fights with the Indians, how the settlers held their town, Indian Rock, the Miami Slaughterhouse. But the people of Marietta had hardly begun to feel at home in their little settlement before a terrible Indian war broke out. The village of Marietta had a high palisade built round it, and if a man ventured outside that palisade he went at the risk of his life for the Indians were always hiding in the woods, ready to kill any white man they saw. When the settlers worked in the cornfield, they had to carry their guns as well as their hoes, and one man always stood on top of a high stump in the middle of the field, to keep a bright lookout. There is a lofty rock on the Ohio River below Marietta, which is still called Indian Rock. It got its name because the Indians used to climb up to the top and watch for emigrants coming down the river in boats. When they saw a boat, they would fire a shower of bullets at it, and perhaps leave it full of dead and wounded men to drift down the river, in the western part of Ohio, on the Miami River, the Indians killed so many people that the settlers called that part of the country by the terrible name of the, Miami Slaughterhouse, 173, what General Wayne did, but President Washington sent a man to Ohio who made the Indians beg for peace, this man was General Wayne, he had fought in the revolution, and fought so furiously that he was called, Mad Anthony Wayne, 
the Indians said that he never slept, and named him, Black Snake, because that is the quickest and boldest snake there is in the woods, and in a fight with any other creature of his kind he is pretty sure to win the day. General Wayne won, and the Indians agreed to move off and give up a very large part of Ohio to the white settlers. After that there was not much trouble, and emigrants poured in by thousands. 174. Summary. In 1788 General Rufus Putnam, with a company of emigrants, settled Marietta, Ohio. The town was named in honor of Queen Mary of France, who had helped us during the Revolution. It was the first town built in what is now the state of Ohio. After General Wayne conquered the Indians that part of the country rapidly increased in population. What did General Rufus Putnam do for Washington? Where did General Putnam go in 1788? What is said of Ohio at that time? Where did the Mayflower stop? What is said of Queen Mary of France? What did the settlers name their town? What did Washington say about the settlers? What did these people do? What is said about the Indians? What about Indian Rock? What was the country on the Miami River called? What is said about General Wayne? What did the Indians call him? Why did they give him that name? What did the Indians agree to do? What happened after that? Eli W.H. Idea 1765-1825. 175. The name cut on a door. Near Westboro, Massachusetts. There is an old farmhouse which was built before the War of the Revolution. Close to the house is a small wooden building, on the door you can read a boy's name, just as he cut it with his pocket knife more than a hundred years ago. Here is the door with the name. If the boy had added the date of his birth, he would have cut the figures 1765, but perhaps, just as he got to that point, his father appeared and said rather sharply, Eli, don't be cutting that door. Mumbersur, said Eli, with a start, and shutting his knife up with a snap. He hurried off to get the cows or to do his chores. 176. What Eli Whitney used to do in his father's little workshop, the fable. Eli Whitney's father used that little wooden building as a kind of workshop, where he mended chairs and did many other small jobs. Eli liked to go to that workshop and make little things for himself, such as water wheels and windmills, for it was as natural for him to use tools as it was to a whistle. Once when Eli's father was gone from home for several days, the boy was very busy all the while in the little shop. When Mr. Whitney came back he asked his housekeeper, What has Eli been doing? Oh, she replied, He has been making a fiddle. His father shook his head, and said that he was afraid Eli would never get on much in the world. But Eli's fiddle, though it was rough looking, was well made. It had music in it, and the neighbors liked to hear it. Somehow it seemed to say through all the tunes played on it. Whatever is worth doing, is worth doing well. 177. Eli Whitney begins making nails, he goes to college. When Eli was 15, he began making nails. We have machines today which will make more than a hundred nails a minute, but Eli made his, one by one, by pounding them out of a long, slender bar of red-hot iron. Whitney's handmade nails were not handsome, but they were strong and tough, and as the Revolutionary War was then going on, he could sell all he could make. After the war was over the demand for nails was not so good. Then Whitney threw down his hammer, and said, I am going to college. He had no money, but he worked his way through Yale College, partly by teaching and partly by doing little jobs with his tools. A carpenter who saw him at work one day, noticed how neatly and skillfully he used his tools, and said, There was one good mechanic spoiled when you went to college. 178. Whitney goes to Georgia. 
he stops with Mrs. General Green, the embroidery frame. When the young man had completed his course of study he went to Georgia to teach in a gentleman's family. On the way to Savannah he became acquainted with Mrs. Green, the widow of the famous General Green of Rhode Island. General Green had done such excellent fighting in the South during the Revolution that, after the war was over, the state of Georgia gave him a large piece of land near Savannah. Mrs. Green invited young Whitney to her house, as he had been disappointed in getting the place to teach. He was very glad to accept her kind invitation. While he was there he made her an embroidery frame. It was much better than the old one that she had been using, and she thought the maker of it was wonderfully skillful. 179. A talk about raising cotton, and about cotton seeds. Not long after this, a number of cotton planters were at Mrs. Green's house. In speaking about raising cotton they said that the man who could invent a machine for stripping off the cotton seeds from the plant would make his fortune for what is called raw cotton or cotton wool, as it grows in the field, has a great number of little green seeds clinging to it, before the cotton wool can be spun into thread and woven into cloth, those seeds must be pulled off, illustration, pot of the cotton plant when ripe and open, on the right a seed with the wool attached, on the left the seed after the wool has been picked off, at that time the planters set the negroes to do this, when they had finished their day's labor of gathering the cotton in the cotton field, the men, women, and children would sit down and pick off the seeds, which stick so tight that getting them off is no easy task. After the planters had talked a while about this work, Mrs. Green said, If you want a machine to do it, you should apply to my young friend, Mr. Whitney, he can make anything. But, said Mr. Whitney, I have never seen a cotton plant or a cotton seed in my life, for it was not the time of year then to see it growing in the fields. 180. Whitney gets some cotton wool, he invents the cotton gin, what that machine did. After the planters had gone, Eli Whitney went to Savannah and hunted about until he found, in some store or warehouse, a little cotton wool with the seeds left on it. He took this back with him and set to work to make a machine which would strip off the seeds. He said to himself, if I fasten some upright pieces of wire in a board, and have the wires set very close together, like the teeth of a comb, and then pull the cotton wool through the wires with my fingers, the seeds, being too large to come through, will be torn off and left behind. He tried it, and found that the cotton wool came through without any seeds on it. Now, said he, if I should make a wheel, and cover it with short steel teeth, shaped like hooks, those teeth would pull the cotton wool through the wires better than my fingers do, and very much faster. He made such a wheel, it was turned by a crank, it did the work perfectly, so, in the year 1793, he had invented the machine the planters wanted. Before that time it used to take one negro all day to clean a single pound of cotton of its seeds by picking them off one by one. Now, Eli Whitney's cotton gin, as he called his machine, would clean a thousand pounds in a day. 181. Price of common cotton cloth today, what makes it so cheap, can cotton. Today nothing is much cheaper than common cotton cloth. You can buy it for 10 or 12 cents a yard. But before Whitney invented his cotton gin it sold for a dollar and a half a yard. A hundred years ago the planters at the South raised very little cotton, for few people could afford to wear it, but after this wonderful machine was made, the planters kept making their fields bigger and bigger. At last they raised so much more of this plant than of anything else, that they said, Cotton is king. It was Eli Whitney who built the throne for that king, and although he did not make a fortune by his machine, Yet he received a good deal of money for the use of it in some of the southern states. 
Later, Mr. Whitney built a gun factory near New Haven, Connecticut, at a place now called Whitneyville, at that factory he made thousands of the muskets which we used in our second war with England in 1812. Footnote 6, in the War of 1812 the British warships attacked Fort McHenry, one of the defenses of Baltimore. Francis Scopke, a native of Maryland, who was then detained on board a British man-of-war, anxiously watched the battle during the night, before dawn the firing ceased. He had no means of telling whether the British had taken the fort until the sun rose, then, to his joy, he saw the American flag still floating triumphantly above the fort that meant that the British had failed in their attack. And he, in his delight, hastily wrote the song of the Star-Spangled Banner on the back of a letter which he had in his pocket. The song was at once printed, and in a few weeks it was known and sung from one end of the United States to the other. 182. Summary. About a hundred years ago 1793, Eli Whitney of Westboro, Massachusetts, invented the cotton gin, a machine for pulling off the green seeds from cotton wool, so that it may be easily woven into cloth. That machine made thousands of cotton planters and cotton manufacturers rich, and by it cotton cloth became so cheap that everybody could afford to use it. What name did a boy cut on a door? What did Eli make in that workshop? What did he make while his father was away? What did his father say? What did Eli's fiddle seem to say? What did Eli make next? How did he make his nails? Where did he go after he gave up making nails? When he left college where did he go? What lady did he become acquainted with? What did he make for her? What did the cotton planter say? What must be done to raw cotton before it can be made into cloth? Who did this work? What did Mrs. Green say to the planters? What did Mr. Whitney say? What did he do? Tell how he made his machine. What did he call it? How many pounds of cotton would his cotton gin clean in a day? How much could one Negro clean? What is said about the price of cotton cloth? What did the planter say about cotton? Who built the throne for King Cotton? What did Mr. Whitney build at Whitneyville? What did he make there? Thomas Jefferson 1743-1826-183 How much cotton New Orleans sends to Europe? Eli Whitney's work, who it was that bought New Orleans and Louisiana for us. Today the city of New Orleans, near the mouth of the Mississippi River, sends more cotton to England and Europe than any other city in America. If you should visit that city and go down to the riverside, you would see thousands of cotton bales piled up, and hundreds of Negroes loading them on ocean steamers. It would be a sight you would never forget. Invented his machine. We sent hardly a bale of cotton abroad. Now we send so much in one year that the bales can be counted by millions. If they were laid end to end, in a straight line, they would reach clear across the American continent from San Francisco to New York and then clear across the ocean from New York to Liverpool, England. It was Eli Whitney, more than any other man, who helped to build up this great trade. But at the time when he invented his cotton gin, we did not own New Orleans, or, for that matter, any part of Louisiana or of the country west of the Mississippi River. The man who bought New Orleans and Louisiana for us was Thomas Jefferson. Footnote 1, a bale or bundle of cotton is usually somewhat more than 5 feet long and it generally weighs from 400 to 550 pounds. The cotton crop of this country in 1891 amounted to more than 8.650.000 bales, laid end to end, in a straight line. These bales would extend more than 8,000 miles. How Jefferson's slaves met him when he came home from Europe. Thomas Jefferson was the son of a rich planter who lived near Charlottesville in Virginia. 
When his father died, he came into possession of a plantation of nearly 2,000 acres of land, with 40 or 50 Negro slaves on it. There was a high hill on the plantation, which Jefferson called Monticello, or the Little Mountain. Here he built a fine house. From it he could see the mountains and valleys of the Blue Ridge for an immense distance. No man in America had a more beautiful home, or enjoyed it more, than Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson's slaves thought that no one could be better than their master. He was always kind to them, and they were ready to do anything for him. Once when he came back from France, where he had been staying for a long time, the Negroes went to meet his carriage. They walked several miles down the road, when they caught sight of the carriage. They shouted and sang with delight. They would gladly have taken out the horses and drawn it up the steep hill. When Jefferson reached Monticello and got out, the Negroes took him in their arms, and, laughing and crying for joy, they carried him into the house. Perhaps no king ever got such a welcome as that, for that welcome was not bought with money, it came from the heart. Yet Jefferson hoped and prayed that the time would come when every slave in the country might be set free. 185. Thomas Jefferson hears Patrick Henry speak at Richmond. Jefferson was educated to be a lawyer, he was not a good public speaker, but he liked to hear men who were. Just before the beginning of the Revolutionary War 1775, the people of Virginia sent men to the city of Richmond to hold a meeting in Old Street John's Church. They met to see what should be done about defending those rights which the King of England had refused to grant the Americans. One of the speakers at that meeting was a famous Virginian named Patrick Henry. When he got up to speak he looked very pale, but his eyes shone like coals of fire. He made a great speech. He said, We must fight. I repeat it, sir. We must fight. The other Virginians agreed with Patrick Henry, and George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, with other noted men who were present at the meeting, began at once to make ready to fight. 186. Thomas Jefferson writes the Declaration of Independence, how it was sent through the country. Shortly after this the Great War began, in a little over a year from the time when the first battle was fought, Congress asked Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, and some others to write the Declaration of Independence. Jefferson really wrote almost every word of it. He was called the pen of the revolution, for he could write quite as well as Patrick Henry could speak. The Declaration was printed and carried by men mounted on fast horses all over the United States, when men heard it. They rang the church bells and sent up cheer after cheer. General Washington had the declaration read to all the soldiers in his army, and if powder had not been so scarce, they would have fired off every gun for joy. 187. Jefferson is chosen President of the United States, what he said about New Orleans. A number of years after the war was over Jefferson was chosen President of the United States, while he was President he did something for the country which will never be forgotten. Louisiana and the city of New Orleans, with the lower part of the Mississippi River, then belonged to the French, for at that time the United States only reached west as far as the Mississippi River. Now as New Orleans stands near the mouth of that river, the French could say, if they chose, what vessels should go out to sea, and what should come in. So far, then, as that part of America was concerned, we were like a man who owns a house while another man owns one of the doors to it. The man who has the door could say to the owner of the house, I shall stand here on the steps, and you must pay me so many dollars every time you go out and every time you come in this way. Illustration, Matt showing the extent of the United States at the close of the revolution, and also when Jefferson became president 1801.
Jefferson saw that so long as the French held the door of New Orleans, we should not be free to send our cotton down the river and across the ocean to Europe. He said we must have that door, no matter how much it costs. 188. Jefferson buys New Orleans and Louisiana for the United States. Mr. Robert R. Livingston, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, was in France at that time, and Jefferson sent over to him to see if he could buy New Orleans for the United States. Napoleon Bonaparte then ruled France. He said, I want money to purchase warships with, so that I can fight England. I will sell not only New Orleans, but all Louisiana besides, for 15 millions of dollars. That was cheap enough. And so in 1803 President Jefferson bought it. Illustration, math showing how much larger President Jefferson made the United States by buying Louisiana in 1803. The Oregon country is marked in bars to show that the ownership of it was disputed. England and the United States both claimed it. If you look on the map you will see that Louisiana then was not simply a good-sized state, as it is now, but an immense country reaching clear back to the Rocky Mountains. It was really larger than the whole United States east of the Mississippi River. So, through President Jefferson's purchase, we added so much land that we now had more than twice as much as we had before, and we had got the whole Mississippi River, the city of New Orleans, and what is now the great city of St. Louis besides. 189. Death of Jefferson, the words cut on his gravestone. Jefferson lived to be an old man. He died at Monticello on the 4th of July, 1826. Just 50 years, to a day, after he had signed the Declaration of Independence. John Adams, who had been president next before Jefferson, died a few hours later. So America lost two of her great men on the same day. Jefferson was buried at Monticello. He asked to have these words with some others, cut on his gravestone, here lies buried Thomas Jefferson, author of the Declaration of American Independence, 190, Summary, Thomas Jefferson of Virginia wrote the Declaration of Independence, after he became President of the United States, he bought Louisiana for us, the purchase of Louisiana, with New Orleans, gave us the right to send our ships to sea by way of the Mississippi River, which now belonged to us. Louisiana added so much land that it more than doubled the size of the United States. Before Whitney invented his cotton gin how much cotton did we send abroad? How much do we send from New Orleans now? Did we own New Orleans or Louisiana when Whitney invented his cotton gin? Who bought them for us? Who was Thomas Jefferson? What is said about Monticello? Tell how Jefferson's slaves welcomed him home. For what profession was Jefferson educated? Tell about Patrick Henry. What did he say? What did Washington and Jefferson do? What did Jefferson write? What was he called? How was the declaration sent to all parts of the country? What was Jefferson chosen to be? To whom did New Orleans and Louisiana then belong? How far did the United States then extend towards the West? What could the French say? What were we like? What did Jefferson say? Did we buy it? How much did we pay? How large was Louisiana then? How much land did we get? What else did we get? When did Jefferson die? What other great man died on the same day? What words did Jefferson have cut on his gravestone at Monticello? Arobiardi Fulton 1765-1815-191 What Mr. Livingston said about Louisiana, a small family in a big house, settlements in the west, the country beyond the Mississippi River. Even before we bought the great Louisiana country, we had more land than we then knew what to do with, after we had purchased it. 
It seemed to some people as though we should not want to use what we had bought for more than a hundred years. Such people thought that we were like a man with a small family who lives in a house much too large for him, but who, not contented with that, buys his neighbor's house, which is bigger still, and adds it to his own. If a traveler in those days went across the Allegheny Mountains to the west, he found some small settlements in Ohio, Kentucky, and Tennessee, but hardly any outside of those. What are now the great states of Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, and Wisconsin were then a wilderness, and this was also true of what are now the states of Alabama and Mississippi. If the same traveler, pushing forward, on foot or on horseback, for there were no steam cars, crossed the Mississippi River, he could hardly find a white man outside what was then the little town of St. Louis. The country stretched away west for more than a thousand miles, with nothing in it but wild beasts and Indians. In much of it there were no trees, no houses, no human beings. If you shouted as hard as you could in that solitary land, the only reply you would hear would be the echo of your own voice. It was like shouting in an empty room it made it seem lonelier than ever. 192. Emigration to the West. And the man who helped that emigration. But during the last hundred years that great empty land of the far West has been filling up with people. Thousands upon thousands of emigrants have gone there. They have built towns and cities and railroads and telegraph lines. Thousands more are going and will go. What has made such a wonderful change? Well, one man helped to do a great deal toward it. His name was Robert Fulton. He saw how difficult it was for people to get west, for if emigrants wanted to go with their families in wagons, they had to chop roads through the forest. That was slow, hard work. Fulton found a way that was quick, easy, and cheap. Let us see who he was and how he found that way. 193. Robert Fulton's Boyhood, The Old Scow, What Robert Did for His Mother. Robert Fulton was the son of a poor Irish farmer in Pennsylvania. He did not care much for books, but liked to draw pictures with pencils which he hammered out of pieces of lead. Like most boys, he was fond of fishing. He used to go out in an old scow, or flat-bottomed boat, on a river near his home. He and another boy would push the scow along with poles. But Robert said, there is an easier way to make this boat go. I can put a pair of paddle wheels on her, and then we can sit comfortably on the seat and turn the wheels by a crank. He tried it, and found that he was right. The boys now had a boat which sweeped them exactly. When Robert was 17, he went to Philadelphia. His father was dead, and he earned his living and helped his mother and sisters. By painting pictures, he stayed in Philadelphia until he was 21. By that time he had saved up money enough to buy a small farm for his mother, so that she might have a home of her own. Footnote 2, Fulton was born in Little Britain now called Fulton in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. See map in paragraph 135, 194. Fulton goes to England and to 